Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi, I'm Don Payne. I'm glad to be your host for Engage 360. You know, perhaps the greatest or one of the greatest disproportions in this country between cultural presence and cultural representation is found in the Hispanic community. And our topic uh, this week is, is going to f- be about ministry within and ministry among the Hispanic community. Now, lots of us know people who make up for mediocre talent with incredible work ethic and than others who have an, uh, an uncanny level of ability, but they rest on that and they never really maximize it because they've never really had to work hard. Well, our guest today has the unusual combination of being incredibly smart with multiple gift sets, and he can outwork just about anybody I know. Uh, he's my friend and colleague, Professor Wilmer Ramirez. He is the Associate Dean for Programming with Ethnic Communities and Director of Hispanic Initiatives here at Denver Seminary. Wilmer joined our faculty in 2013 as an instructor in Hispanic Studies. Uh, Since 2008, he's been the Director of the Hispanic Initiative here at Denver Seminary. He has a BA in Theology, an MA and a THM from the Central American Theological Seminary, known as CETECA, in Guatemala City. And he's currently completing his PhD at Biola University. I'm going to have him tell you a little bit more about that later. Uh, Wilmer has taught at the Central American Theological Seminary as well as uh, in the Pan-American Neo-Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Guatemala. He founded and is director of uh, Edificar, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Edificar. Close, Edificar Ministries (laughs) in Guatemala, where he published Bible study materials for underserved churches in Central America. So I want to welcome my colleague and friend, Wilmer Ramirez. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Wow. (laughs) Glad you could be with us. Uh, Wilmer, first, would you tell us uh, just a little bit about your own own background, your own journey, your family, and then we'll get into the to the heart of other matters. Okay, yeah. Help us get to know you. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you here. And let me tell you about me. Okay, I was born in Honduras, uh, Central America, uh, and spent my most of my childhood and um, teenage years uh, serving in a ministry uh, with uh, youth uh, groups. I was part of what it's called ICTUS program. That's an international program for youth uh, that mirrors, in a way, uh, the, the scouts. Uh, so this is kind of okay. a, a Christian scout. All right. So my life during those years were mostly camping and a lot of activities. And during that time, I um, sensed and discerned the call uh, to ministry um, and went to Guatemala to study at the Central American Theological Seminary in the year 1990. And that's when my journey with ministry started. And, uh, yeah, I met my wife uh, there at the Central America. We were classmates. We were sitting uh, <laughs> side by side. One of those academic romances. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Intensive one. An intensive academic <laughs> yeah. romance. Correct. That, that sounds just, like just, a novel waiting yeah, to be you written. Yeah, spend a lot of time with <laughs> your partner. It's a wonder you graduated. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> and it was a, a really nice experience there in Guatemala. And after graduating from my BA in, in theology, 
uh, I started my master's uh, degree in, in Guatemala also, and by that time I was invited to help teach uh, at the seminary on the ministerial programs that they have in, in Guatemala. So I started teaching since uh, 2005. I started working with them, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, amazing. Uh, I, I think that you always learn more when you teach than, mm -hmm. than when you are, are in the classroom. And uh, that, for me, was a formational experience uh, during that time. Uh, we got married in, in 2000, uh, well, in 93, I mean, and started having family. Uh, um, our first son, uh, Wilmer uh, Jr., I uh, was born in Guatemala, so my uh, daughter, Krista, was also born there. And we we stayed there teaching at the seminary while studying, uh, both of us, uh, until 2005 when we moved to Boston. So, yeah, it's and a little And what brought bit, you to Boston? Well, Boston was a, a kind of a, a rapture, <laughs> I can say that. We were doing our ministry in, in Guatemala when uh, our daughter, Krista, got sick, truly sick. She was diagnosed with a cancer. And that changed our, our lives in many ways. Mm. Uh, and we came to Boston looking for uh, an alternative treatment for her cancer. Mm -hmm. And we, we managed to uh, have her uh, treated in, in Boston. So she went to remission and uh, a long process of recovery. So we lived in Boston for two years. And that's when we heard about Denver Seminary, our professor Danny Carroll was mm. Yeah. Here, he was also our professor in Zateca during a, a, a long time there. And he invited us to come to Denver and help with the Hispanic Initiative. At that time, it was not called Hispanic Initiative. It was basically a group of three churches that wanted to have something in Spanish for them. And Danny Carroll was helping them uh, I remember with that, that process. Yeah, that was a, a process. By the end of the year, he thought that that was it. That <laughs> well, I, I, I've done my part with the Hispanic community, but there was a second group coming in, wanting to have more theological formation. So that's when he said, "Wow, I'm I'm full time here and also doing this on the side. So it's a lot." And that's when uh, we got the invitation to come to Denver and help him with the Hispanic initiatives at that time. Tell us more about that. The uh, what, what is now Ideal? Uh huh. Um, what what has that grown into? Well, Ideal is one of our programs. Was the first program that we initiated when when Dr. Carroll was here. Uh, Ideal is the Institute for the Development of Leadership and Training of Leadership. So it started as a, a small Bible institute uh, with uh, participation of around maybe four or five churches. Uh, at that point, uh, around maybe twenty something students coming in for uh, courses that were uh, uh, an overview in, in theology, uh, an overview in ministry, was a very uh, limited at that, at that moment, but we started working uh, and started uh, developing the program into what's now the EDL program that has two, uh, basically two levels, the basic plan that we call it, and then the ministerial plan. It's a two-year program for the development of leader, lay leaders in the church, in the Hispanic church. From that, we grew into other programs that uh, we felt that there was a huge need among the community. We started a program for uh, marriage mentoring. Uh, uh, there's a lot of need in that area. A youth program, youth leaders program also uh, came into, into place. And then we also saw the need for an academic program. That's when... We partnered with Zateca, 
to bring an extension site. So it's a very interesting model because we are doing uh, uh, this model of extension sites backwards in, in a sense. Uh, it's usually a uh, uh, North American seminary going to third world countries and establishing uh, uh, sites there or extension sites in, in, in those places. But here is uh, a Latin American seminary uh, establishing an extension site in a true partnership with a North American seminary. So that that's was innovative. Yeah, that that is, as far as I know, rather unprecedented. Yeah, I think that we are the one, only ones doing this. Yeah, that's that is cool stuff. Yeah. So when um, when I introduced you, I mentioned that there there may be the greatest disproportion between mm-hmm. um, presence and cultural Correct. representation in the Hispanic community. I've not proven that, but that's, it, it seems to be uh, true with some of the, the figures. So yeah. I pulled, um, pulled some recent figures from the Pew mm-hmm. Research mm-hmm. Center. The overall uh, Hispanic population in the U.S. is right under 60 million. Yep. Uh, the state of Colorado, 1.136 million. Correct. Um, any other... Any other stats there that would help us kind of get a get a sense of uh, wh- where the Hispanic community mm-hmm. plays a role and what kind of role the Hispanic community plays in both the state of Colorado mm-hmm. and and in other states? I mean, we've we're mm-hmm. uh, ministering as a seminary and in other locations as well. So yeah. help, help us get a sense of of that. Well, uh, overall, the as you as you mentioned, the, the presence of the Hispanic community is huge. It's, it's growing uh, a lot. And at the same time, the representation in several arenas, it's very limited. Uh, when we think about the theological formation, for instance, uh, Hispanics only represent about uh, 3 to 5% of the student population in seminaries and uh, in many other uh, institutions uh, like um, theological schools or things like that. Uh, in terms of the church, the church is one of the churches that's uh, basically growing and and. When you think about other ethnic groups, uh, I think the Hispanic community has the fastest uh, and highest rate of uh, growth among the, the Christian community. Okay. So it's it's growing a lot, and and that's the the main uh, the core of the issue that we have. It's a growing a fast growing church with a representation of only three to five percent in theological schools which means that there's uh, a lot of churches that have uh, a leadership that has not received any at all uh, training in theological formation or for ministry, and that becomes uh, one of the biggest challenges that we have in the community. Uh, there's uh, also uh, a lot of issues that comes with being a minority in this country uh, in terms of nutrition, nutritional aspects, financial aspects of the community, uh, the immigrant life is hard, and then we have the complications of the, all the undocumented immigration that we all know about and we hear in the news, and all those factors are uh, really um, challenges that the com- community has to face uh, year by year. I would imagine that the, uh, all of the issues around the, the undocumented community make life difficult in many ways for the resident community. Correct. Yeah, it, it is very difficult. It's a, it's a life of fear. I can say that, and it, it depends on the on how the political um, rhetoric is its work out uh, that the community will feel safe or not, and that triggers uh, a lot of uh, 
anxiety, a lot of fear, and, and even thinking about theological formation for a group like this depends on that, uh, on how well or how comfortable you feel of investing the resources that could be used in case of an emergency. Uh-huh. So they're not that willing when when there's a lot of pressure. They're not willing to invest in, in many things, and theological formation is part of that. But when things are favorable for, for the group, then they open up. They see the need. Uh, they truly understand that they need theological formation, but uh, it's until the circumstances around them are, are, uh, are good that they are willing to go out and, and seek for that theological formation. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it was it was probably eight to ten years ago that I was ministering for a very brief time in Ecuador, it's in Quito, mm-hmm. Ecuador, and I had a really fascinating experience. Um, after the better part of a week uh, ministering there, my host uh, took me down to a, a more centralized part of Quito mm-hmm. uh, for a Saturday, uh, an outing, and we we went to a what was a very, very large, um, like a flea market, mm-hmm. an indoor flea market. Inside the flea market, they had a, a big platform where they would bring entertainment. And on this particular Saturday, they had a Mexican mariachi band. <laughs> down in Quito. For wow. the, down in Quito <laughs> for the entertainment. And we walked around for a while. The band took a break for lunch, and I saw one of the mariachi band members carrying a stack of Pizza Hut boxes <laughs> back to his team members for lunch. And my host mentioned, this is globalization at work right here. <laughs> a Mexican yeah. mariachi band eating Pizza Hut in Quito, Ecuador. <laughs> and and that's uh, it was just an unusual and interesting experience. But it, it, did, it did indicate, or I think it represented, one feature that is often, that non-Hispanics often may be blind to, and that is the diversity, mm-hmm. the ethnic and cultural diversity within the Hispanic community. Correct. Because when non-Hispanics think of the Hispanic community, it's easy to see that as rather uh, homogeneous. Mm-hmm. But I think that's far from the case, is it not? It, it is far from the case, yeah. And, when, and, and what kind of challenges and issues does that raise mm-hmm. within ministering, ministering within the human, Hispanic community? Correct. Uh, yeah, you know, when we think about the Hispanic uh, Hispanic community, we think all basically about Mexico. And that's one of the biggest challenges that many have uh, in terms of ministering this community. They, they think that all Hispanics are Mexicans, basically. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's a lack of understanding that the Hispanic community is uh, composed by 22 different countries and very, very proud of their national origin. Yes. And whenever you say to someone, oh, what part of Mexico are you from? Assuming that 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 person is from Mexico, then you get this harsh reaction, I'm not Mexican, <laughs> just to start with. <laughs> and they get confused. Uh, geographically, we're challenged. Uh, uh, but, that, but that I mean that people in the U.S. think that, for instance, Guatemala is part of Mexico, okay. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. They, they don't understand the diversity that we have. But it's not only national diversity. Uh, it's also uh, racial diversity. We do have uh, a mix of races uh, within the Hispanic community. We have what we call the Ladinos uh, that are basically a mix of Spaniards and, and locals uh, in, in the time of the conquest. But then we have the pure indigenous groups that are part of the, our ancestry. And then we have all this uh, st- uh, stream of African slaves that came to many parts of the 
of the Americas and part of Latin America. So we have uh, many of them in the Caribbeans and many of them in all in Central America and, and South America. So we are a mix of races also. And educationally in the U.S., we are so diverse. We have people that uh, hardly finish their degrees, uh, even their high school diploma. And we have uh, with them people that have master's degree. We have PhD. We have all, uh, all those mixing one single church. And can you imagine how difficult it is to minister uh, this wide variety of uh, different um, educational levels? At the same time, the fluency varies. The levels of acculturation varies. And we have a first, uh, second, and third generation, and in between the first and second are 1.5s that are truly a bridge in between uh, generations. So, uh, I, and I could keep talking about the diversity that we, we own as a Hispanic community, of, and of course, it's really challenging. That's why you can see churches that are grouped around a specific nationality, where the preference is that if there's a lot of people from El Salvador, then that church becomes almost a Salvadorian church okay. or a Caribbean church or something around that. You, you mentioned something that I had wanted to ask you about anyway, and that is um, the uh, first generation, 1.5, mm -hmm. second generation. What, what kinds of unique... Uh, challenges uh, and and maybe resources have you mm -hmm. found to be helpful in ministering across those generational lines mm -hmm. within the Hispanic community? You know, that's a puzzle. <laughs> I don't know if we have found a key to ministry along the different generations. It's really hard. When you think about first generation, they are uh, uh, transferring their ways to do church from Latin America to the U.S., so it's and, a very, and probably trying to preserve as much correct. of that as possible. And, and, and preserving not only the denominational features of the church, but also the Spanish. So some churches, the first-generation churches, feel that their mission is not only to communicate the gospel, but also to preserve culture mm -hmm. and preserve also the language. So that brings a lot of tension in between anyone else who is no longer that fluent in Spanish. So that's when you find the 1.5s that are right in the middle, that they were born basically abroad. They were brought here very young, and they uh, were raised in the U.S. They entered the um, educational system very early. So they learn, they speak, they, they understand the culture, but at the same time they live with a first-generation parent, which means tension. You know, from, from my interactions with... Um uh, other underrepresented ethnic communities, the 1.5s seem to me to be in the most difficult place of yes. all. Yes, yes, they are. They are. They don't feel comfortable in their abuela's church, as I say, <laughs> or in their parents' church, because even the first generation teases them. Uh, you're no longer a pure Hispanic because you're not, you, you cannot you know, even speak or understand the Spanish. But they, at the same time, when they go to an Anglo church, they, they feel that they are not part of that church. And they also miss some of the ethos of the, of the Hispanic church, the community, the sense of, of communities lacking there. So it's a very difficult. They truly live in the hyphen. And by that, I mean... Live that in they, the hyphen. Yeah. That's that a great phrase. Mexican hyphen American. Guatemalan hyphen American. And they truly live in the middle. And sometimes uh, that's uh, an identity issue that they have to deal with. Then when you think about the second and third generation, there are more, uh, there's a process of acculturation that's more 
for them uh, to identify with the Anglo community. So they think like an Anglo. They they live their lives more like uh, third generation, fourth generation. Uh, I joke about that. They still think that Taco Bell is from Mexico <laughs> 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 and things like that. But that's the reality. Uh-huh. So uh, there's uh, a book that uh, talks about the different identities that we have, and it's amazing how complicated it is. Uh, truly, uh, do, you, do you know the title of that off the? Yeah, top it's of your by head? Juan Francisco Martinez. Is the name of the author of the book, and it's called uh, uh, Hispanic Churches. Uh, uh, oh man, I, I, I forgot the, the title of the book. But uh, yeah, I think we can put a link or something in the podcast uh, directing to, to that book. But Juan Francisco Martinez. Juan Francisco Martinez okay. is the author of that okay. book. He was a, yeah, be a, good uh, a professor from Fuller okay. that wrote that book. Uh, so it's amazing and how different we are. Uh, um, and that, of course, it's a challenge. Yeah. And when, when uh, uh, any church wants to minister the Hispanic church, then there's a, a huge decision to make. What section, what part of the Hispanic church uh, community are we reaching to? Are we reaching to the English-speaking Hispanics? Are we reaching to the Spanish-speaking Hispanics? Are we reaching to a specific group that we want to serve, like an indigenous group? And there are places in, in for instance, in, uh, uh, Georgia or even uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, where full communities, complete communities are indigenous. They go from their native language, there could be Kachikel, Mam, or any other language, directly to English without learning Spanish. So interesting. it's a challenge to know. That's the first decision that anyone who wants to minister to, to the Hispanic community needs to do. What section? Because I don't think, uh, I haven't seen a ministry that really has the, uh, uh, the resources to really gather everything that we are. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. So. Well, that, that would be um, a responsibility to, to get to know what is the Hispanic community, what's the nature of the Hispanic community in anyone's immediate locale. Correct. Correct, yeah. Because it's not just one thing. Yeah, understanding the, the percentages of uh, first, second, and third generation, understanding the national uh, diversity that's in that specific location, uh, understanding the levels of acculturation, things like that. So, for instance, in, in populations like Los Angeles, uh, or Texas, uh, cities in Texas like Houston or San Antonio where we can count fifth-generation Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Understanding that history behind it is crucial compared to, for instance, Denver, where we have first, second, and third-generation well-established, very, very small number of fourth- and fifth-generation Hispanics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but understanding that piece is crucial for a, a successful ministry among okay. Hispanics. What would you say, I'm going to ask you to broad brush here for a moment. What would you say, if you could identify w- one thing as the most significant challenge that the Hispanic community or the Hispanic churches mm-hmm. face, what would that be? Well, well, there's two different things uh, in that question. The, the needs of the Hispanic community are very different from the needs of the Hispanic okay. church. Okay. When I think about the Hispanic church, I will say that uh, leadership development is the crucial piece there. And by that, uh, uh, people need to understand that most of the pastors in the Hispanic church are um, working full-time jobs in anything uh, from uh, low-pay grade jobs into uh, professional jobs. And at the same time, 
uh, investing their weekends or nights to minister to the church. So when you think about a, a pastor that's uh, investing 40 hours, 50 hours in their jobs, and then having to spend uh, 10, 15, 20 hours ministering the church, there's no time for leadership development in, in that scenario. And you think about a pastor that uh, uh, we have a sense that maybe in between 80% to 90% of their time and their effort goes to preparing the, the sermon and the uh, service for that particular weekend. And then things like, yeah, discipleship, things like uh, leadership development, they're, they're put back in the, in the list of things to do because they don't have the time yeah. to do it. Yeah. So that means that we have uh, growing churches without the appropriate leadership. Uh, to sustain the growth. And then when that happens, we see uh, a pattern that uh, it represents to the church growing phases and then uh, division and uh, going down in numbers to go up again. And that's the pattern that we see uh, over the years because of that that, that issue. So that's the main uh, issue okay. for the church, okay. for the community. That's a different set of, of issues, the community uh, I think one of the biggest challenges is education. Education can bring a lot to the community, but the system is not prepared for the Hispanic uh, community. We're still developing a curriculum that was built for Anglo uh, suburban uh, white kids mm -hmm. with populations in schools that are 75% Hispanics. And it's amazing how, how the impact of that uh, turns out. In, in terms of uh, attrition from high school to uh, community colleges, universities, everything. It's, it's a challenge. It's the challenges go from very early when they are enrolled in first grade, for instance, uh, and they come from a, a Spanish-speaking family. Uh, they have estimated that they have uh, um, 3,000 words less than any regular Anglo kid. And that is interpreted by the system as a lack, as uh, something that the system needs to fix. And by trying to fix that, uh, it comes uh, to the point where the, the student, uh, the more years they are in the system, the more behind they, they are yeah. in their education. It's a self-reinforcing problem in some ways. Self-reinforcing yeah. problem. Turn this around, if you would. Mm -hmm. um, what what does, does the Hispanic church have to teach the non-Hispanic church? What, what, what does the rest of the church need to learn okay. from the Hispanic churches? Yeah, I always hear about complaints from, from um, churches about how difficult it is to be Christian, and they don't know <laughs> the half of it. <laughs> when you think about how difficult it is to be a Hispanic Christian, it's, it's really tough uh, in many ways. So with less resources, with less leadership, with less uh, of everything, they do a lot. One of the things that I, I, I can think of that uh, uh, any church can learn from the Hispanic is uh, uh, the way that they have preserved they, their want and their, their need to evangelize, to go out, to preach the gospel. That's one of the strengths of the church. And I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the churches that are growing. Uh, because they, they do evangelize, they go out. A second thing that I would say that any church can learn from the Hispanic is to hear more the voice of the Spirit. 
you know, the Hispanic church is mostly Pentecostal. Uh, it's uh, it's truly amazing how the Spirit moves within the Hispanic Church. The Holy Spirit's not just a truth on a page. No, a it's book. it's not a doctrine. It's a person, and it's a, and you pray and you expect His presence in the service, and you can truly see His presence in those services, and that's amazing. Mm. And uh, I think that's something that many churches <laughs> need to hear more. Need to hear more about uh, the ways of the Spirit and how the Spirit guides the lives of Christians and and the ways of the church. Mm. So it's amazing. I, I yeah. think that's one Thanks. of the, the the biggest strengths. Mm. Hey, tell us a little bit about your doctoral research, which you're you're <clears throat> excuse me, you're currently bringing that to a mm -hmm. close. Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, um, it came about because of the lack of representation of the Hispanic students in the seminaries. So I was wondering if the cultural uh, uh, factors were playing a role in this uh, underrepresentation of Hispanics in, in, in theological schools. So I started researching about the, the role of cultural competence, how well does faculty manages intercultural relations and how that impacts the attrition and retention of Hispanic students in seminaries. So. Yeah, I've been working on that for a number of years, trying to identify what is, what is the impact of the level of cultural competency of the faculty in a predominantly white seminary and how this contributes or impacts the retention and the attrition of Hispanic students uh, in, in those institutions. This has been quite an interesting thing. It's, it's amazing how culture plays a huge role mm -hmm. Uh, for the Hispanic community and how that uh, helps them to stay in the seminary, to face the challenge of the seminary uh, education and flow through and graduate and how it's also a way where it can discourage a lot. Mm -hmm. um, preliminary uh, uh, findings have shown that we owe to the Hispanic community as seminaries. We prepared them to go and teach and minister white suburban churches. But their main goal is to go back to their community and we are not helping them to understand how to do that. They have to transfer that knowledge by their way, in their own ways. And I think that that's a lack that seminaries have in terms of uh, really giving them the, the resources and the training and the tools necessary to go back to their communities. And that was the main reason why they came to the seminary, mm -hmm. is to go back. One of the reasons I'm so excited you're here with us is that we, and this is selfishly speaking, we're going to get to benefit from your research. But <laughs> thinking, thinking in more kingdom terms, uh -huh, correct. it's, it's going to benefit uh, theological education, I think, around the country. Uh, I, I encourage anybody who's listening who uh, maybe is of Hispanic origin in, um, in any fashion to, to think about coming and uh, learning from our brother here. Thank you. Uh, here at Denver Seminary. Hey, I want to start to bring us to a close with a couple of maybe less sober questions. <laughs> I want to know what is the this the funnest or the funniest thing that has happened to you in ministry? <laughs> well, you know, I don't remember if I prepared you for this, but I I just I want. Yeah, I think you mentioned what, something around. Yeah. <laughs> what makes you thinking. laugh in ministry? What what's where's the fun? 
Well, there, there's a couple of experiences. Uh, I think at what point when, when we were uh, professors in Guatemala, we uh, embraced the ministry of the ridicule. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this sounds like something that needs to be resurrected. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. But the thing is that we, uh, we used to have a, a group that represented an African uh, community for the purpose of encouraging churches to do missions. And we, I cannot imagine how, how we did that. <laughs> For 12 years, we went traveling around many churches trying to encourage them to missions, representing an African, Ameri- uh, an African community. Okay. So it was funny. It was <laughs> truly something unexpected in my ministry, ministry time. And uh, it, it was truly an experience that I, I, I remember as one of the funniest okay. <laughs> things I have ever done. Okay, for, for good. We, we have to kind of grab onto those and, and preserve <laughs> them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what is the food from your country, Honduras, mm-hmm. the, the best food from Honduras that most Americans need to know about? Wow. And, and, and that very few do know about. Okay. Um, I will say uh, the um, snail soup. Snail soup is not. Uh, I wish the, you had not told me that. <laughs> yeah, but, but here's the thing: the snail that we're talking about is not the uh, ground snail. It's okay. Sea snail. Okay. The sea snail is very particular. It's white meat, and it's truly amazing. It's uh, a coconut-based soup. Okay. With, now I'm interested. Yeah, it's really good. That's for me, at least, is the best uh, food from Honduras. It's, uh, and you can call it by its name. You, we, when if you go to down to Honduras and ask for a, a snail soup, there will look at you. And the name is sopa de caracol. Sopa I'll, de caracol. Okay, I'll not try to repeat that. That's <laughs> so, the name that you, you need to use. Sopa, say Don't it go ask him for say a snail soup. <laughs> sopa de 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 caracol. 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 You got it. Okay. <laughs> Get some today. That's the best. Okay. Can you get that locally? Or do yeah, you have to make yeah. it? There, there's a small restaurant in, in Aurora that you can find sopa de caracol. Okay. That, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that the rest of the day. <laughs> Wilmer, thanks. You're we've welcome, uh, we've been visiting today with uh, our friend and colleague, Professor Wilmer Ramirez, who directs the Hispanic initiatives here at Denver Seminary. This is Engage 360 uh, from Denver Seminary. Again, I want to encourage you to uh, subscribe to the podcast, tell others about it. Uh, See the Denver Seminary website, website, denverseminary.edu, for information about uh, EDL or any of our other programs. I'm Don Payne. On behalf of our whole production team, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll check in next week for another conversation. Take care.